this book um, really likes to talk <laughs> about cream. I know that's a subject near and dear to Dave's heart. So cream, we talk a lot about cream, cream peas, cream salad, cream chicken, cream carrots, fried cream, cream corn, baked cream, cream potatoes, cream spaghetti. Cream spaghetti. Oh man, there's so many. Also, yeah. black lung was real. I did not know so, that until this. I thought that was a 100 percent Zoolander joke. <laughs> the things Mateo has learned are real on this podcast. Baby Crockett, Black Lung. I got the Black Lung. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to Are We Bad Dads? where three regular guys talk about their favorite popular history books. We're Aaron, author and father of four, Dave, high school U.S. history teacher and father of four, and me, Mateo, graphic designer and father of two, all of us who are incredibly soft. We'll consider how we match up to some of the greatest men in history, laugh at each other's expense, and try to answer the nagging question, are we bad dads? All right. So this is our podcast on the book, A Square Meal, A Culinary History of the Great Depression by Jane Siegelman and Andrew Coe. A sunshiny follow-up to our last book, A Fever in the Heartland. This book will not cover racism. Well, not really. Uh, will not cover, there's a little racism. I mean, there's some comparatively speaking. There's <laughs> Compared no to Fever in um, the Heartland? I wouldn't be hard pressed. Like, like we'd have to find a book on something like the Holocaust for it to be not to for it to be sunnier than Fever in the Heartland. I mean, look, it's about the U.S. Uh, pre World War II, so you kind of you should kind of know what you're getting into there. Uh, not that everything ended then, but the book really talks about the Great Depression and how that affected people's culinary habits. One of the things the book brings up, guys, is we're going to talk a lot about our families and how we eat. It estimated at that time that women were spending 13.2 hours on food prep a week. Does that seem <laughs> about the right for your wives now? I, when, I, when I asked Elena, she was like, that's insane. I don't spend anywhere near that in the kitchen. But, you know, we also have the benefit of things like frozen pizzas and sandwiches. Mm. So... Food prep at the Sharp House doesn't take anywhere near 13 hours a week. What about you guys? That would be, what, roughly two hours a day? Mm. No, no, not unless there's like a special, like several like special occasions and there's family coming in and she's got to do a bunch of meal prep for, you know, something like that. Uh, no, not on the regular, though. That's a lot. Yeah, and they also talked about how they would spend yeah. two, it would take they'd walk two miles in their own kitchen to make a pie. And it seemed like they were doing that every day. Okay. I don't have. Yeah. I thought that was actually really interesting. I just well, don't have pies every day. So I don't think I've got. Right. What was it? Like three pies a day. Women were on average were baking. It sounds like it, but they were, but it, is it heaven? I don't, <laughs> but it was different, it, but they weren't all like pies. Like we think of, like, I think of like, Boston cream pie and peanut butter pie or whatever, but theirs were like, you know, meat pies, hand, fruit uh, pies, like hogshead cheese pie, and you know, 
a bunch of stuff we had left over from the hog pie and all, all that <laughs> kind of stuff. So not all of those pies seemed like they were created yeah. equal. So. One thing I did find interesting was they were talking about the size of the kitchen. Mateo, you made reference to that, how they were walking like two miles. And so like part of the book is like this shift between uh, life on the farm and life in the city, which I thought was really interesting. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But one of the big differences was the size of yeah. the kitchen. And in the city, you're talking about like an efficiency apartment. There's not room for these big, you know, you know, walk around type kitchens. And so I thought it was interesting that there's almost this shift away from, for the sake of efficiency, right? Bringing science and efficiency into the home. Like there was the shift away from the large kitchen. Whereas nowadays, right? If you've got the money, one of the things, like even if you don't use the kitchen a lot, like the kitchen is more and more becoming the place to like be and hang out and, and so there's this desire for these big, expansive kitchens like they had in the 1920s that they moved away from. Yeah, it's kind of interesting how just the amount of time that these the women would spend to do all of this stuff. And then she still had time to go uh, fan her husband while he was eating lunch. <laughs> you know, my, my favorite part of the book at the very beginning, because it basically starts at the end of World War mm -hmm. One. And kind of takes you to the beginning of World War II, kind of that that transitional period of the Roaring Twenties, the Depression, and then uh, taking you to the Second World War. Interesting how mal malnourished uh, American soldiers were going into World War mm -hmm. One. And then my favorite, possibly my favorite, uh, quote from the book at all. Uh, the whole thing was about how it was custom for them when when soldiers were coming back home from World War One, they'd all be on the ship. So people would throw food at them and they began to hire professional baseball pitchers to throw oranges and soldiers were getting concussions <laughs> because these pitchers were hitting them with oranges. I mean, that's, that is the funniest thing. Ever. I just imagine being this soldier. You survived like death in World War I in the trenches only to come back and get concussed by somebody letting it rip from the dock with a fastball. Right. So that, that was a pretty, pretty nice piece of American. Yeah. Culture. What I thought was interesting, so they, the authors, they, you, they really do a great job of like highlighting how hard things were in terms of feeding your family during the Great Depression by starting in this time of like food wealth. So like at the end of World War One, granted they were malnourished going in, but Towards the end, she was talking about, the authors were talking about how American soldiers were taking in on average, like, like their food rations allowed for them to take in 5,000 calories a day. And they were, we, the American soldiers were the best fed soldiers on the battlefield. That was just really, it was really interesting. The dynamic that you have with the war and then the depression and uh, the Spanish flu was ma was a major part of all of that. Obviously we haven't had uh, those kind of dynamics, but you know, getting, we talked about last time, those same dynamics hit places like Germany uh, different because of how they, how the war affected mm. them. But this book um, really likes to talk <laughs> about cream. I know that's a subject near and dear to Dave's heart. So we talk a lot about cream, cream. peas, cream salad. Cream chicken, 
cream carrots, fried cream corn, <laughs> baked cream, cream potatoes, cream spaghetti. cream spaghetti. Oh man, there's so many, so much cream in this book. Uh, <laughs> but it was like it was like this like a way to stretch food and make it make it last longer. It was yeah, well, really fascinating. So Mateo, you're a little younger. So did your did you have grandparents or anybody in your family telling you like stories about the depression? No, I did not. Dave, did you have any grandparents or anybody who would regale you with stories of the depression? I had a my grandfather and grandmother. Like I, so my major fascination with his like kids. We don't, you know, as kids, we don't typically. Or at least I didn't like care about these kinds of things. Like I see somebody's practices, you know, when I was a kid and I'd be like, oh, that's really weird. Nowadays I'm like, oh, that's fascinating. Where did that come from? It's different now. And you know, my grandfather passed, uh, I guess it's been 10, 11 years now. And so he was, it was the last few years of his life that he was just getting to the point where he could talk about his time in the war. And even then, he wouldn't talk a whole lot about it. But I never thought to ask him about life before the war, like life during the Great Depression. He was born in the 1920s. And so he would have been a kid through the Great Depression. That would not have, he would not have escaped the effects Where of that. But unfortunately, North Carolina, North, North Carolina. So, yeah, I never, I never thought to, I never thought to ask him. That would have been good. But I mean, like there were all these things that he and my grandmother did and, I mean, it was the 19, I mean, my dad was a kid when they finally got indoor plumbing in their house. He still, he, my dad still remembers having to go out to the outhouse in the middle of the night when he had to go to the bathroom. And, um, you know, there were a lot of things that they practiced in their home that were effects of the Great Depression, right? You make, you make things last as long as you can and you use you know the food that you have and the type of salads that they talk about in the book which are not the kind of salads <laughs> i was thinking right at first right so like fdr has this thing against salads because his wife is wife eleanor is all about like being an example of making food go as far as you can and he doesn't like salads i'm like oh well fdr doesn't like salads ha 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 but then he was like but he did eat but he did eat prune pudding. It's it's true, but the salads were not like salad salads. It was like canned fruit and yeah. cream cheese and mayonnaise and gelatin. <laughs> I'm like, what is that? I, I know we'll get to milk orno, milk widow, and milk. Oh orno, yeah, but the first the first I mean, enriched foods. My grandfather, similar to yours, Dave. Like I, I spent years trying to get World War II stories out of him, and would occasionally get a little bit of a nugget. But not much. He just didn't. He didn't want to talk about it. Now he would. He loved to talk about the Great Depression because he was a dyed in the wool Democrat because of the Depression. Mm. And so, growing up in a conservative, his son, my dad, conservative right wing Republican, my grandfather just couldn't stand the idea that his son was voting Republican. So there were many family functions that this that this came up because 
My grandfather, in his words, he would say, believed that Roosevelt had solved the Great Depression. And so there was no discussion. My dad always said, because he died right after Obama took office. And my dad always said when Bush was president, that if he didn't wind up in a soup line because of George Bush, he was going to be disappointed. And so he never wound up in a soup line because of George Bush. But but just that that level of, it, it was ingrained in him, this depression. And he, in his mind, it was all the Republicans' fault. And so what, mm-hmm. here we are 80 years later, nothing wow. else matters except for in his mind, Franklin Roosevelt solved the Great Depression, and it was this awful thing. Well, I have Roosevelt a question. Roosevelt did this, I, and here we are. So, Dave, I remember you mentioning that you'd read a book on Hoover, and hmm. and mentioned that he was brilliant. And from the book, like he's just like this. And and this book doesn't go super in depth on Hoover, right? But where it does go in depth, it's like, well, not not doing great. What right. was his deal during the Great Depression? Was it was it pure politics? Like his, like people need to, like what is the thing? Is like people aren't starving. Like nobody's starving, or was it just like ego, or pride? I was so confused. Like why he messed it so hmm. bad? Yeah. No, I was going to ask you what you what you guys thought of how they dealt with with Hoover in the book. It's actually very, very true to life, or like I say true to life, like true to what I have uh, read from before, right? So he's, he's like one of his nicknames is like the great humanitarian, right? During World War One, he like organizes a global effort to feed Belgians who are cut off because they're being occupied by the Germans, um, right? So... But in situations like that, I, they, they reference it in the book, which I thought was really interesting. Before, during his humanitarian efforts, like with the flooding, during, what was it, Coolidge's administration, like he, he went there. He went there and he saw it for himself, right? And so that would like that. And with the same with the Belgians. And so that would like inform how he responded. But with the Great Depression, he was president and he had people around him and they were the ones who were going out. And so a lot of what was getting reported back to him was like almost like this Republican agenda of, you know, everything, you know, it's not as bad as it's being reported. It's not as bad as people are making it out to be. No one's starved. So like he's saying these things based on what people are telling him. And he's trusting them to have informed him accurately, but it's all through a lens. He should have he should have gone and seen things for himself. He was not he was not a politician, right? If you know, if if if, um, I think had he been allowed to, or, or had he gone to see things for himself and been allowed to respond as as I think his character would have dictated that he should, I think things could have been a lot different for him. Hmm. I don't know. I thought it was really interesting. What did you, what did you think about their treatment of Hoover and his response to the great depression? I did not have a very well-formed picture of Hoover before Hmm. this. So the, the, I, 
might have known a little bit about the World War One part, but that was interesting. Seeing the guy that you know that's going to completely botch the American Great Depression, basically make his name doing the opposite for Europe. There's a real problem which exists for everybody, which is how much do you help people in need? Like at what point, what's the cutoff line for that? Hmm. How do you figure out who really is in need? You yeah. know what I mean? I think that's even matters as dads. Like when do you step in for your kids and when do you let them flail for a while? It's the same, it's the same thought process, but even FDR is constantly making these comments about, well, I don't want people getting used to free meals. And, and there's, there is a real tension there of how, what's the best way to do this. And I think Hoover, to your point, Dave, listens to the wrong people and takes this line because he just, he just whiffs. Hmm. He just he just listens to the wrong people and completely whiffs on it. I thought it was a pretty fair. It didn't it didn't seem at any point like they were just had it in for Hoover. Mm-hmm. It seemed pretty fair because they also, like I said, FDR makes some mistakes in there too, and those yeah. are in there. Mateo, what about you? Well, there's one quote that they give that I feel like just paints Hoover in just this real funny way. The gourmets of the world should forget Paris and go to Iowa. <laughs> I love that. Yeah, and, and but meanwhile, he's also like they talk about how he's eating imported foods on his super expensive White House budget. So it, it to mm-hmm. me it seemed like he was so out of touch, and and yeah. it felt like just modern politics, like just like you're just you're voting party lines and you kind of saying what you need to say. I think there, it wasn't like a deep dive on him. So I don't know if that was true or not. I didn't even realize he wasn't truly a politician. So it does make sense that he was just listening to the wrong people. Because you do get the sense that he's brilliant. There was one little portion there where he like found like $100,000 to feed kids in this like rent budget. It, and I just, mm. I thought that was awesome. Like, like what a, what yeah. a massively different time period where you're like finding money surplus in a budget and spending, you know, like that's so different than today. But to think, to be the president, to be doing that, awesome. But I don't, I don't know. Yeah, like, I, I appreciate it. I, go ahead. I just thought it was a little silly. Like that quote, his view is just like, eh, I didn't understand. Yeah. I did think it was a really balanced, they had a really balanced approach to Hoover. And, and I'm not like a diehard Hoover fan. He was, you know, done dirty. I just, I think there's a, a, a much more balanced perspective to be had on him. But what gets tacked to him is really a lot of FDR's like presidential campaigning. Sure. Like he nicknamed it the Hoover Depression. And yeah, he was warning presidents that came before him, like, like things are getting, like this is getting out of control. Somebody should step in and do something. In a day and age when Republicans are like, nope, we're not going to do anything about the business. Everything is fine. Everybody's making money. We're making money. So, like, we're just going to let it ride. And he's like, okay, just <laughs> okay, right. So his hands were kind of tied, and he didn't want to shake things up. Anyway, I, I could probably go on a little bit longer than I thought that I would, but yeah, I thought it was a, an interesting take on, on his response to, to the depression. 
Did you notice this was second? But anyway, back to cream spaghetti. Henry Ford looks like a complete ass. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's a reason for that, Mateo. Yeah. Because he was, so yeah. Right. So so not entirely free (laughs) of racism. (laughs) Yeah. It's kind of a theme. <laughs> if we if we make our way through US history decade by decade, I feel like it's going to be there. Yeah. The two things, the two things we keep coming back to in my US history class and I tell my students this at the beginning and I tell them this every single unit. The two things we come back to constantly. It's going to be laissez-faire economics and racism. Wow. You understand those two things? You understand a lot of U.S. history. So, are you saying that the that knowing about North Sea herring pickled, smoked, and in sour cream is not <laughs> imperative to knowing U.S. history, Dave? I didn't say that. I said most. <laughs> okay. Oh, okay. Okay. Because the other like part of that this book. is herring. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Also, that we in this book we have something similar to something that was in the Wright brothers, because in the Wright brothers. Bicycles were basically seen as a tool of the devil to destroy young people. And in this book, it's the delicatessen. I would just like yes. <laughs> sign of the end, the delicatessen. Oh, man. I mean, the things that people thought were just a sign of decadence, it's just like amazing. Now, if my kids <laughs> want to ride a bike to the delicatessen, I'm like, go for it. Great idea. You're getting exercise. This is wonderful. You know, on a screen. So yeah, anyway. that's interesting. It's like the oh man, the whole rise of home ec economics. Like I, I remember having a home ec class and had no idea. I never put the words together like home economics. Like that was a real science that they were trying to figure out. Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's such a, it's such an interesting tension in this book between science and kind of down home good old boy learning on how things work and like they sugar they they were like oh sugar's a health yeah thing. it's an energy booster like you energy <laughs> booster so slam that stuff yeah. in there and then these people come along and they're like no you need vitamins and they're like i don't <laughs> i don't need your book learning boy i don't want to know about no vitamins i'm fine give me some more i'm sugar. fine with this milkshake boy just move on. I got, I got crops to get in. Give me some more sugar. I ain't got time yeah. for your vitamins, Like man. a milkshake for lunch or a slice of pie for lunch. <laughs> oh I mean, it sounds like a dream come true. And then you're a diabetic. <laughs> and I'm, this is part of the problem with Social Security is the whole, the whole system was based upon those people who, weren't, who were clearly weren't going to live very long. Now we know better and we're not doing that. And look, we don't have money in Social Security anymore because we're living longer. <laughs> so in a way, the science kind of shot us all in the foot. So anyway, um, this is the story. <laughs> Sorry, FDR. Didn't mean to ruin your I program. will. I will um, say I have not – I don't know how you guys feel about it, but I thought like maybe for like a podcast special, we could go like three months on the lamb chop and pineapple diet made famous by Hollywood actors, <laughs> right? Where you have like a lamb chop and uh, yeah, a slice yeah. of pineapple. 
You guys just let me know when you want to start. And we'll just see what happens. It's already on my Thanksgiving menu. Yeah, you just let me know. Ooh. Yeah, I was going to I was going to start that after Thanksgiving. Count me in. I just wanted to get through Thanksgiving. Okay. I I love lamb chops, but I I don't know I I would be curious to know how long before it's like uh <laughs> What food if, if you guys were like we're going to pick one food and it it, it, it can even be just one meal, but this is the meal you're going to get every meal and the longer you go the more money we'll pay you. Like what meal would be the one you're like, okay, I can do this meal and I can, I can, I can, I can go a while on just this meal. We talk about the book be? or just in general? In general. Just in general. Just, yeah. Just in general. Cause Dave's Dave likes lamb chops, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not lamb chops for Dave. So I, I know I like I could do a sandwich and a baked potato for a sandwich and a what? Baked sandwich potato. and a baked potato. Yeah. Okay. What kind of any kind of? I'm not saying it's healthy. I'm any kind saying. of sandwich. I mean, ham and cheese, turkey, whatever. Doesn't matter. Hmm. I know. I know. For me, what is definitely not is Club, boiled whatever. eggs. I reach a limit on boiled egg after like <laughs> one and a half weeks. If I have a boiled egg every day, like there's something about them that I can't even look at them. <laughs> Mateo, Mateo, but doesn't your son doesn't your son like demolish like a thousand we of these have a week? A giant egg budget, yes, because my son, four years old, pounds boiled eggs. Do you do like the Sam's Club? Like I don't know, ninety something. No, after reading this book, I'm trying to. I'm I'm sticking to the pasture raised expensive eggs. No, you're the you're the Hoover so, of egg eaters. <laughs> only only free range. <laughs> only only the free range. I'm going with, with from the freest of ranging. <laughs> <laughs> it's the, he he has he just added them onto his diet order that comes in. Onto the- <laughs> Just a just a stroll down to the boulangerie. I mean, no joke. We've been going to the bakery that's close by once a week, so you're not far off. <laughs> France ruined you, Matteo. It is completely ruined. This book did not ruin y'all for modern I, like food science. Like, like to me, when I read this, it was like, oh, the farmers had it right. Okay, so I wanted to talk about this. So I'm so glad you brought it up. It's really interesting. Like nowadays, you start like scrolling YouTube or, you know, your newsfeed or whatever. There's this, you're constantly inundated, especially if you like click on one and then the algorithm kicks in and it says you want to see all of these only all of the time. Um, So like there's, you know, this guy that comes on the screen he knows exactly what you need to eat just you know take this quiz and you know you can you know and tell you exactly what you need to eat in the course of a day and the exercise that you need to like do this and that and the other thing and like i'm reading this i'm reading a square meal thinking to myself they've yeah. been doing this for like a century just eat this you know yeah. like this is how it needs to be like newest science says that this is how you need to eat and the farmers are like 
eggs and biscuits <laughs> and pork belly and jars of fruit preserves and I love the idea of you never served biscuits <laughs> naked. You always had you always had something to put on biscuits on the table. It's great. Well, they, they talk in here about the Kansas and Missouri farmers were consuming between 4,385 and 4,989, which seems oddly specific, calories a day. I mean, so they're basically like Olympians mm. with the amount of like calorie consumption because sure. that's the level of effort they're putting yeah. in. And unfortunately for me, Mateo, if I do the farmer's diet, I just go sit on my rear end at my desk and then this isn't going to go well. You guys will be doing this podcast without me within a couple of months. That's the, that's the challenge is I have to actually, I'm reasonably active for an office job, but I've even started, you know, they, they do the thing at work where like around three o'clock, a lot of people take a 15 minute break and just go do something. And so I've kind of started trying to walk just to get more steps in just because I need to get to the 10,000 number that's supposed to, that should be good. So, but I've even started trying to t go for that 15 minutes to just get a walk in just to get some more steps in because there are days where I'm, I'm chained to a desk and I'm not getting around much. So I think that that's interesting too, thinking about what did they do, but then how is my life different from theirs to begin with? Mm. You know what I mean? How much physical activity is involved in graphic design? Mateo? <laughs> so much. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, but Mateo, but Mateo, Mateo now does all the gestures, so he's doing a lot 100%. of this thing. So, oh, like a wee, <laughs> yes, yeah. sure like, a wee? Yeah. like a wee, like a wee. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's actually the next Olympic sport is the the wee graphic design. <laughs> I I mean I I tease because e even as a teacher, like I'll I'll move. I'm moving around my room pretty regular, but even still, like I'm not burning anything close to 4,500 calories. You're not, you're not walking two, you're not walking two miles to make a pot. No, no, not at all. Though that would be two miles. That's two miles well spent. <laughs> Let's just. It is. I mean, if you're, I've walked two miles for lesser things. I'll tell you that. <laughs> so. Uh, so the, one of the questions we had on the on the texturing was, what food would be your family's MVP? You know, obviously, probably something that wasn't available in the Depression. I think Mateo's eggs were were probably Mateo were one of Mateo's answers. What did you say, Dave? What was your family? Eggs is a big. One. I can't remember what I put in the text, but I know eggs for yeah. sure is one of ours. And like almost like roasted anything, anything roasted, oh, yeah, like vegetables. Yeah. Chicken, fish. Roasted broccoli, my kids will devour roasted broccoli. I don't know broccoli. what it is about roasting it, but it like, makes it magical. It's nice and crispy. You season mm. it. It's got a good taste. Roasting is kind of maybe the, the king of food preparations right in our house. Other than like grilling and smoking, that's a different whole different category. But for us, probably, probably peanut butter. Peanut butter does a lot of heavy lifting around here. So the, the PB&J is kind of a family staple. So I just think of peanut butter because <laughs> I, I do a lot of the dishes and I'm constantly scrubbing peanut butter out of things. So I'm like, dang, come it, man, more peanut, peanut butter. Peanut butter dreams. But we also buy that sucker at Costco. So we buy that thing by the mm -hmm. bucket and 
Slather. We, we buy peanut butter like the like the Boyd family buys eggs. So, hey, speaking of dishes, know. what this is not not in the book at all. What do you let go down the disposal? I'll let like lemon and orange peels go down the disposal. Soft soft okay. foods. Okay, so here's the deal. I didn't grow up, but we didn't have one in my house when I was a kid. So I'm just in my mind, if there's food on a plate, I should just put it in the mm. trash. And Elena's always like, just put it down the disposal. Oh. And I'm like, I just this feels weird. Also, I'm married <laughs> into a plumbing family. So if the disposal breaks, I just make a phone call and I get a new one. So that also impacts that sounds that sounds like a marketing <laughs> scheme. Put it down so. the disposal. Here's my card. <laughs> Well, that didn't work. He called this number. Yeah, but I mean, so I, yeah, the, the lemons and the limes and all that kind of stuff is supposed to be really good for it. I'm forever not putting a lot of stuff down to the disposal. What do you anyway. put down to the disposal? Well, historically, everything. But I've also mm. ruined some pipes. <laughs> <laughs> so I've learned. Mm. And Mateo did not, did not marry into a plumbing family. So yeah, PSA so, for all your listeners. No. Just don't put anything down there, actually. You're better off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we didn't have one growing up, so I just, I'm used to just, it, just, it still feels weird to me. I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm a 46-year-old man, but it just still feels like that should go in the trash. So I don't know. I'm not blaming <laughs> my parents, but it is their fault. Um, so anyway. Just kidding, mom and dad. Just kidding. Uh, one of my favorite things about this book. So, how many of y'all have ever have heard somebody refer to spring fever? Yes. No. Yeah, Mateo, have you, have you heard this? Like, have you ever no. heard something attributed to spring fever? Okay. I mean, like that was a thing growing up. Oh, he's it's spring fever, but it was always like, you know, March and April restlessness. People just. You know, you're tired of going to class. Somebody says, oh, it's spring fever. And as it turns out from reading this book, spring fever was actually just people getting sick. They're malnourished. Was it, yeah, was it yeah. scurvy or what yeah, was it? That, it was scurvy. Uh, scurvy, yeah. Yeah. So, like, I mean, my heart, I've heard my grandparents reference spring fever, and I'm like, all this time, y'all thought it was spring fever. No, they were like literally getting scurvy. They were, they're basically, you're running a pirate ship from your farm. And that's what's happening. Also, black lung was real. I did not know that until this. I thought that was a 100% Zoolander joke. (laughs) 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 Things Mateo has learned are real on this podcast. (laughs) Baby Crockett, black lung. I got the black lung. We talked about cafeterias on the text string, furs and lubies. Because those made an appearance. Yeah, man. I don't remember. I feel like I ate at a Luby's at some point after Elena and I started dating. Maybe her grandparents. I can't remember. I feel like we did it at least once. But that was probably 18, 20 years ago. But both of you guys grew, grew up occasionally going to the, a cafeteria, right? Place. Oh, yeah. It was, it was great. I would get chicken fried steak. And I would drive my mom crazy because I would do mashed potatoes and French fries. Okay. And she would just be like, you don't, you need another vegetable. And I was like, I already got it, mom. I already got both potatoes. I got, I got both veggies. So, and my, and my Luann platter only comes to two sides and I've already got them. So here we are. <laughs> but that was a thing after church, yeah, right? For me. For you, yeah. for you, Dave, right? 
Furs. Yeah. We went to Furs Cafeteria. That was kind of the Sunday place to go. Yeah. That's and you you know you yeah. hope you hope that the preacher let you out uh, at noon, if not before, so that you could get a good place in line. You got to beat the Methodists to get there. We rarely did. <laughs> I would go tomorrow if y'all asked. We we need a bad dad live on location from movies. That's what we need. I still, I still like, it's interesting because we're talking about it and I still hear like the clink of dishes <laughs> and like the steam yep. rolling off the, the, the tables and people like, I, I'm still like, I'm like having flashbacks right here. Oh, and when you get to the end and there's the chocolate pot. Right. Or, or you know, you're just like, yeah, yeah. You just slide it right onto your tray. Like, how easy was that? Ah, loopies. My dad also worked, I think, at Furs in high school or something. And I remembered people like dropping like a bucket of mashed potatoes on the floor and they would just scoop it up and then put it out there for people. So my there's he always kind of had some trauma. Loopies is still yeah, in existence, just so you guys know. Uh, yeah. 42 locations in Texas. So we're, we're in luck. So. The, the bad dad on location in Luby's is still possible. So, so the delicatessen, we've talked about yeah. that a little bit. Wheatless, eggless, butterless, milkless, sugarless yeah. cake. I feel like that, that feels like something you probably could still get today. Any favorite recipes in this book? Before we get to there, I, I will say this. If there are any other teachers that are happen to be listening to this podcast that aren't me, I was impressed with uh so as you know as a teacher in the state of texas like we have teaching standards there's things that we're supposed to teach our kids about with regards to u.s history um teaks is what they call them and so i was impressed the number of teaks that they hit everything from bonus army to the contrasting hoover fdr responses to the great depression they hit the Civilian Conservation Corps, the Works Progress Administration, like like so many things they that that she touches on. Or I keep saying she. I listened to the book narrated by a woman, so in my mind, the narrator was the author of the book. So when I'm referring to her, I'm thinking of the narrator in my head. But this was a couple that wrote this book. So my apologies. That's why I keep having that mishap. But Andrew Coe, we're sorry. We're not trying to leave you out in favor of James. I'm so Eagleman. sorry, Mr. Coe. It's <laughs> not intentional, I promise. But I was just like, if if you are like, I want to get a better understanding of this period between the wars from a, a different perspective, like a culinary, this culinary perspective is like, they really do a great job of showing how food like connected people and how different people from different walks of life ate differently. I think one of the things that they point out in the book is that, and this is the first time, I think this is the first time I can remember white uh, Anglo-Saxon Protestants being referred to as wasps, but how a majority of home economics professionals and scientists were white Anglo-Saxons. And that lended itself towards uh, a certain type of diet yeah. and a cooking a certain way. That was really yeah. 
really interesting. But like all of that to say, like, I thought they did a phenomenal job of really highlighting how food is kind of this as kind of this connector between all of these events and at force at sometimes the lack of it being a, a motivator for different things that that happened. I don't know. Well, and they also, because of, because these are the people driving the train on this, they define Spanish rice <laughs> as rice with tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> like, wow. I don't feel like that's actually Spanish rice, but okay. Yeah. No, I, it's an interesting perspective, Dave, of like how many like uh, points it hits that are like what you're trying to hit when you're- Yeah, and so just if, if you're looking to teach- you know, just like change things up in the classroom, like introducing something like this, like this was a recipe that they had in the Great Depression, like giving them like, because so many of our memories are tied to food as just as human beings, right? Yeah. And so to tie an experience re with regard to food to an activity or a lesson or a particular event, like can be immense. I'm thinking about doing that. Like we've just started the Great Depression. And that's what I want to do when we come back is I want to prepare one of these recipes for my students just as a means of like, like tying what I'm teaching to an experience. So which recipe, Dave? Should, can, can, should Mateo and I pick it out for you or do you already have uh, it in mind? My fear is that if I let you pick it out, I, I will not want to eat it, let alone share it you with like others. <laughs> don't get me wrong i do enjoy a nice set of pig brains if i if i just knew where to get some milk orno i would have you do chop suey with milk oh orno. my gosh that's what i would have you do milk orno man like that whole thing milk orno milk Guido, and milk odo i read the names <laughs> and i was like this they're making this up like this is just this isn't real this is not, and then I start Googling and I'm like, oh no, milk or no, milk weedo, these are real things. I get it. Nutritionally, they're trying to get as much bang as they can for their buck, but what would it take for you guys to eat a meal made with milk or no? A depression. <laughs> okay. <laughs> FDR to rise from the grave and become president again? I mean... Oh, I would what, try. About you, what about you, Mateo? I'm down. I'm game. Wow. See, Mateo's much more of an adventurous eater. This is why Mateo would survive the it's Great true. Depression. You're right. I'm not soft. Look at you. Soft. You. You're sure you wouldn't have been, you wouldn't have lasted long in the 18th century, Easy. but the Depression, you'd have been fine. I would enjoy waiting in the bread line. Easy. <laughs> <laughs> with your with your Starbucks drink. <laughs> the times are tough. <laughs> they are, I had to had to go grande this week while I'm in the breadline. So but you know, so on this conversation of like how do we as a society, as a family, how do we think through well, who needs help? How do we decide that? One story that came to my mind was when I was a kid in church, there was this older couple and we were told, hey, they're having some real financial difficulties. I mean, this is the pastor. 
you know, this couple's having a lot of financial difficulties. We're going to come together in church and take up what they call a love offering. I don't know if you guys have ever heard that phrase before. We're going to take up a love offering for this couple to help them through this rough financial time. And we all, you know, everybody chipped in. I don't, I don't know how much the money was, but everybody chipped in. They gave them this love offering, you know, everything. And this couple is friends with my grandparents and they took the money and he bought his wife a diamond ring with it. And, so, and that's just what I was thinking about reading this book. Wow. Um, because on one hand, you're reading it and you're thinking how awful for you to be like, these people are out of work and no, you're not going to give them any help. But the I, but there is a legit concern, I think, of like, what's the best way to help people? Because those people, I think, did have a financial need. And I don't know how they decided the love offering money was really intended for a diamond ring. But that was not what people and, and I knew people like my grandparents, the next time they said something about somebody needs money, and there's going to do a love offering. My granddad was like, Nope. Because this is not the way to do this. And, but I, I kept thinking about that story. And it's just kind of interesting thinking through, like, how do we figure this out? Like, I don't, I don't know how you try to do that. What do you guys think? I, I spent four and a half years in New Jersey at a church. And I think uh, of the churches that I've been in, I felt like they had the right idea of how to go about things. You had church leadership that was heavily involved in the community. And so they knew people and not just like they'd see them in church, but like was, had been in their homes and had conversations with them and had lived a lot of life with them. And so with our, um, often it was left to, and we also had like, I don't, there's so many names for them now, like small groups. We called them missional communities and they were communities that were, you know, out in neighborhoods and involved in lives of, of people in that way. And so when there was a need that was presented, if it was presented to the, the missional community, right, it would, we would try and see what could be done about it in our, in our group of people. If it was something that that needed to go to leadership, then it was it was put to leadership, and they were kind of brought in to the conversation if they didn't know about it already. And so there was a lot of awareness, a lot of involvement, all like already. And, uh, and so there there could be like accountability is it sounds like it sounds like a cold thing a cold it sounds like a cold word in certain contexts, but like you, you know, after they had been helped with whatever they needed, like you knew you would see them next, the next week and, you know, would, there'd be a follow-up and, and things of that nature. And so it really was, um, a good experience for me to see. They also would have, you know, random strangers from time to time who would need help. And the policy was, you know, at, under a certain amount, like they would, they would, they would just, they would help and they would take care of it. If it was a situation where they came back, then, then there would be more of like a conversation, like, you know, budgeting, what, like, what's your income? What, where's your budget at? Like, we need to sit down and have a heart to heart because we don't, we don't want this to be a regular thing. 
you know, we want you to be able to take care of these things on your own. And so like, but there was always this assumption of dignity, right? And I think that's so often something that can be missed. Like, oh, you're right. I mean, we, you know, you drive past the person with the cardboard sign. Too often the automatic thought is, well, what did, what did you do to get here? Right. What choices did you make? What are you going to, I don't trust what you're going to do with whatever it is I'm going to give. Right. That's like, we see people falling on hard times and, and the automatic assumption is you did something wrong to get yourself in this situation. And so like there's a, a, a denying of something, I think, in, in that assumption that so often we can have. And so starting off with assuming the person's dignity, I think is something that was taught to me at this church. And I think it's always a good place to start. Yeah, I think you you wrote something interesting, Matteo, about the, this is kind of where school lunches started. And I thought that was an interesting, I never had any concept that there was a time before, it, it makes sense, but it just, you know, when with school lunches didn't used to be a thing. And this is kind of where they started in that effort to make sure the kids were taken care of. Because a lot of them, that would be the only meal only dis decent meal they had, they would have kids showing up on Monday that hadn't eaten since school on Friday. And that was kind of just typical for the period of time. Thankfully, the church does come off better in this than they do in Fever in oh, the Heartland, sure. which is nice. Yeah. Well, again, it's a low bar at this point. You know what I mean? The church isn't like consorting with, you know, racist right. predators. So look at there. We're, we're, it's even when, better when, already. When above um, the bar is like, not terrifying and torturing and kidnapping people, right? Bar's been, bar's, bar's been set pretty low. We cleared mm. it. We cleared it. Well we done. Will, we will help well you. Done. We will help you cook your liver loaf. Um, two pounds of liver, four slices of bacon, which doesn't feel like enough bacon for me to eat two, two pounds of liver, but that's fine. Uh, this is when Quaker Oats made its appearance is in the Great Depression. Uh, there's also mentioned in this book, it says it instructed housewives not to pour off the canning liquor, but instead empty the can li liquor and all into a broad skillet. Is liquor used in canning? Like I Googled this and couldn't, I, I, every time I did canning liquor, I was coming up with something that was, this is not, this is not telling me what I want to know. Would you, would you not like, recommend Googling liquor? canning liquor? It, it wasn't pulling up something that was scandalous. It just wasn't pulling up what oh, I was oh. looking for. So it's like, like uh, there's like a brand of liquor. I don't know. I just couldn't find what I was looking for. But did they used to use liquor to can things? I mean, I don't know. I don't know. Who knows? But when they canned their jellied lime and grapefruit salad, this is the kind of salad that FDR didn't right. want to eat. Um, what a snob. You know? Lime, that Jello. I mean, Jello was like a big player in all this, and I just Jello just doesn't do it for me. I'm sorry, it just isn't going to work work for me. So I'm way too picky of an eater to have made it through the Great Depression. I would, like I said, I'd have been out. Mm -hmm. Desperate so times. You you may surprise yourself. <sighs> that's true. That's true. And when you get hungry enough, I guess that, that that makes a big difference. One piece of this I did think that was interesting is we're kind of coming down the home stretch here. I had never thought through the plight of single women or women in, who are in business that the breadlines were not for hmm. them. Like most of them didn't allow women and the ones that did, it was also kind of a, 
a social taboo to be a woman in a breadline. Super interesting, would have never thought about that. So I was really glad the authors kind of gave us insight into that, about the plight of the single woman who's actually worse off than a family or because she doesn't have access to the stuff well, she, it, that maybe those other It people. just kind of adds to the social stigma that she is a woman who could not get a husband. Right. Even though there's like, this is the time of, you know, flapper, like sh skirts are going up to the knee now and um, women are having their own jobs and having their own efficiency apartments mm -hmm. and like and going to delicacies and, you know, all these other scandalous things. But when it came down to it, um, there's still this, this cultural stigma of being a young woman and that, and that means there must be something wrong with you. The the plight of the of, of women during the Great Depression was was very interesting. I did appreciate that the book, and this may be the part where you guys tell me I'm dead wrong about something, and that's fine. I appreciate that the book brought it to, to World War II, as in like this was kind of the ultimate fix for the Great Depression, as, as opposed to anything that FDR did. Really, the war was kind of kind of what really finished off the Great Depression more than any kind of breadline or anything like that. I think that's an interesting thing that I actually have argued with my grandfather about that too, but that's fine. See, so he claimed it was Roosevelt. No, I don't think it was Roosevelt. I think it was actually the war that finished that thing off. But anyway. No, I, no I was going to I was gonna ask is, was that if that was your official stance, was that the it was World War II that brought us out of the Great Depression and not uh, the New Deal? My official stance is that's what took care of it. The, the, the new, if, it, if it's a pie chart, the new, new Deal gets a, a slice of pie and World War II gets a mm -hmm. slice of pie. But I don't, I don't know what would have happened without the World War II slice mm -hmm. of pie. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Because I think World War II is what ultimately – like got, people get jobs because they're getting drafted and we're making – we're making bombs. I think that's now, would, it, would we have eventually come out of it? Probably. Anyway, maybe maybe World War II just sped it up. But I think by the time you get to the late 30s, the Great Depression becomes like a thing of the past because we're cranking out guns and airplanes and supporting Britain and Russia and all kinds of stuff. And, and then eventually we're going to war. So I'm not saying the New Deal didn't do anything. I'm just saying, I think ultimately the fix was everybody going to war. So anyway, tell me I'm wrong, Dave. Uh, no, 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 I'm not going to tell you you're wrong. I think, I think I do feel like going to, the whole silent count mm, going to war. A lot of people really like in a, in a Coolidge, sense, in a small like, sense. When, when you read the book, Hoover, you're like, well, he did this thing. So Hoover like kind of had an accomplishment for a while. Whereas Coolidge is just and like, I probably am wrong, David, if you think I'm, I'm stuck at this and, and there's the, the story in the book, which I've, I've read that it may or may not be true, but about the lady at the party that bet somebody she could get him to say three words and he responded by saying, you lose. I mean, that's a great story, whether it's true or not, it's fantastic. But Coolidge just, he, he comes... You get the impression that Hoover was a good dude who was maybe just disengaged and detached. And Coolidge doesn't come up, come across to me in this book as even that. An, an active, you know I mean? an active but, avoidant. And, and, and here's and here's the thing: I probably read more into Coolidge in this book 
because of what I read about Coolidge in the last book and seeing how he actively went out of his way to not deal with racism and things, then you probably read this book and you're already predisposed to be like, see, here's Cal again, not doing anything about the problem. Yeah. So, all right. So I'll give, I'll give Coolidge a bit of a dirty diaper, not a blowout, but definitely a dirty diaper. I'll give him a dirty diaper. Hands down. Okay. Hands in it. Hands, Hands in, in it. Okay. Uh, dirty diaper. <laughs> to uh, do nothing, Cal. I will give. I will give Eleanor Roosevelt the duct tape award on my part for getting FDR to try the plum pudding. Yeah. That seems like a a very impressive thing. On she was an part. amazing woman. Any other awards for you guys? Do you want to give a, an award out for your favorite recipe in this book or your least favorite recipe? Well, I'm thinking of there's the there was the one social worker. She and her husband ended up in was it Michigan? Um Matisse, Michigan. Uh, you know what I'm talking about. I forget her name. I want to give I want to give a a a duct tape award out to her because she because she even wrote her own like memoir about her experiences. Yeah, because she worked as part of the uh, the FVRA office there in in small town Michigan, and you know knew. The families that she that she dealt with and was involved in a lot of their lives, which was part of a social worker's responsibility. If you were receiving government aid, then you had a social worker all up in your Kool Aid. So, and for for her to like like to hear like some of the quotes about her memories again, like I just made this connection. Her assuming the dignity of of the people that were local to her, and like her doing what she can for them. I just really yeah. appreciated her perspective. Props to her. And you've got to pick one recipe from this book and tell me, it can either be like, I really want to try this or I'll never eat this in my entire life. What do you guys got? I, I'm going to go for me, chop suey with milk or no. I'm just not, I'm not doing it. I would eat that before I ate liver loaf. <sighs> that's, that's, you know what? You may you may be on to something there, Dave. That does seem. I've I've never had liver in my entire life, and I'm forty six. I'm forty six years old, and I I have every intention of going the distance with that. I've never seen the movie Titanic, and I've never eaten liver, and I'm going to keep both those going. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> hey, babe, you want to watch Titanic and eat some liver loaf? I want yeah. those, what the, what were they called? The three stick biscuits. Right? That woman who had it down almost to a science of like timing, the heating up of the oven and getting those biscuits in there. What about the creamed spaghetti with carrots? Does that get you guys excited for Thanksgiving? If you know there's going to be some creamed spaghetti wow. with carrots. Yet another way why, pe why people have I ruined don't, I don't. I don't think we're talking about like Alfredo sauce here. It's <laughs> milk and flour and a, some kind of, like a little bit of some kind of fat. And salt and pepper to taste. All right. Let's go for our cargo short rankings. Ratings here. One to six cargo short ratings. I will give it a five. It was really well written. I loved like the scope that they were covering 
and still staying with the connectivity of food, I, I thought was, it was really interesting and they were really consistent with it. I think, I think the only thing that's keeping it from a six, and this is totally subjective, I, I would have, I, I, I closed the book thinking I would have really liked to have gotten more personal stories of people going through it. Like there were quotes of people and, and they kind of like, they, they did that. I just, I would have wanted more like personal experiences, I think for me, like, because the, the one lady in Mastice, Mantis, I forget the name. Like I left, I, I left the book going, I want to get her book and read, read her book. Yeah. That's the only reason. Totally uh, subjective. But that's, book. that's my five out of six. Yeah. I like this book. I'm going to go, I, I'm going to go like a 4.5. I definitely liked the book. I felt like after the first two or three chapters, I was having a hard time. It needed more chronology or something for me. It was interesting, but I felt the first two or three chapters were, were better than the rest of the book. Just because I felt like I understood what was going on a little bit better. Because then, I mean, you get the recipes and stuff were cool, but I was kind of like at a certain point, it, I think with that with the personal stories would have helped kind of like help me to focus on what was going on as we went through. So I thought it was a good book, but I'm going to give it 4.5. Anything else, guys? That's it for me. Happy Thanksgiving. Yes, we're recording this episode two days before Thanksgiving, when we will all eat our prune pudding, our creamed spaghetti with carrots, our liver loaf, and the chocolate cake recipe seemed yeah. pretty good to me. We forgot to bring out red velvet cake. This is the origin of red velvet cake. Oh, that's right. It's the Great Depression was when red velvet cake happened. So it's not like nothing good came out of the Depression because we got red velvet cake. <laughs> the salvation of the Great Depression. So many lives yeah. lost Maybe. that we might have red we velvet got red cake. Velvet cake. Is, is this my is this is this my Marie Antoinette moment on the uh, on the podcast? Let them eat my velvet cake. <laughs> Thanks for listening to the Are We Bad Dads podcast. It would be awesome if you subscribe to our dad's podcast and review it on tunes. The show notes include links so that you follow them on Instagram or check out their YouTube channel. Have a question or comment for the dads? Send it to them at dads at bad dad pod dot, dot com. Yeah.